Welcome back to America Speaks. Allegra Love is a true freedom fighter. She is the consummate voice for the people. Allegra is the founder of the Santa Fe Dreamers Project. She began her career in Santa Fe Public Schools in 2005 as a bilingual elementary school teacher and followed her passion for working with immigrants to law school. After graduating from the University of New Mexico School of Law, she came to work for the Adelante Program of Santa Fe Public Schools. She volunteers extensively both in her community and elsewhere for organizations like Santa Fe Youth Commission, No More Deaths, and New Mexico Dreamers in Action. Most recently, she has worked to defend Central American women and children detained on the U.S. border. Allegra is a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. She has a BA from Dartmouth College, a JD from the University of New Mexico School of Law, and is a licensed teacher in the state of New Mexico. But to understand Allegra's journey, it is vital to go back to her travels when she took a break from work in 2014 and traveled from her home in Santa Fe, New Mexico, to Tenosique, a small town in southern Mexico, located 35 miles from Mexico's southern border with Guatemala. This town is an important way station for Central Americans migrating to the United States. Allegra is an immigration attorney, but she was there to volunteer at the local shelter. A rail line runs through town and many migrants stay at the local shelter as they wait for the train to pass through on its way north. This train is known as La Bistia. Riding it is exceptionally dangerous. Two weeks before Allegra arrived, a toddler had lost his leg trying to catch La Bistia with his mother. Throughout her time in Tennessee K, Allegra listened to horror story after horror story depicting the reasons why families were desperate to escape the violence in Central America. Allegra became committed to be the hope for these migrants and help in any way she could. Allegra, it is a pleasure to have you on as our guest on America Speaks today, and we are delighted to include our producer, Kim Langbacker. Let's start today by talking about your experiences in that small town in Mexico at the border of Guatemala and how that defined your journey and basically changed your life. That was about four years ago, almost to the day, actually. I was practicing law at a little agency in town, practicing immigration law and doing some sort of social work for them. And I had some time off and I decided I'd heard about a shelter on the border of Guatemala and Mexico called La Setenta y Dos, which is a shelter for migrants who are moving across Mexico. And I traveled down there to go offer any assistance I could, whether it was like cleaning, cooking, but also to talk with migrants on their way north about what they could expect when they came to the United States. This year on the migrant caravan, probably a lot of people might remember they were hearing about in April, I went to Puebla, Mexico and did that in like a much more structured way on the migrant caravan with Puebla and Fronteras. But in 2014, I was just going down to help assist at the shelter. And it was an incredibly fascinating and educational and frightening experience. You mentioned 
La Bestia, the Beast. The shelter is on the train line that throughout the last decade has carried migrants across Mexico. And it's an incredible thing to see with your own eyes and to meet the people who are putting their children and themselves onto freight trains to seek safety in the United States. It was absolutely incredible. And then when I got back to the U.S., my sister picked me up at the Albuquerque airport and said something like, hey, what about all those, the new migrant camps they're putting up the detention centers in the desert up in Santa Fe? And I said, what? While I'd been gone, they threw up this makeshift detention facility for women and children just a few hours from where I live. You know, I was coming off of this trip, like incredibly moved by what I'd learned and the people I've met, only to find out that those same people as they're coming to the U.S. were being facing just sort of like indefinite detention and imminent deportation because the Obama administration had chose to revive the family detention practice. This was all in like the three weeks I'd left the country, four weeks, you know. Mm. So I got my truck and went down there and started participating in this national project to end family detention that was four years ago under the Obama administration and that's where we've been fighting ever since. Unbelievable. Is our dismissal of what's going on in Central America our refusal to really look at the cause of why so many are fleeing the violence? Is that a sign of our disregard for that kind of human suffering? I think our country disregards human suffering all over the globe. I think what's fascinating about this particular problem in Central America is if you go further, further back in history, you'll start to see that we were the cause of it. I mean, not the direct only cause, but that we participated in creating the environment and the instability and the violence that destabilized that region. And then like if you, as you head further towards the present, one of the huge things that contributed to the rise of gang violence in Central America is that uh, during the Clinton administration, they emptied prisons of Central American people who had been imprisoned in the United States and sent hundreds of thousands of people back into these regions once the civil wars ended, into these totally destabilized regions. And they'd been learning, they'd been forming gangs in the U.S. Like the Mara Salvatrucha was formed in the U.S., in the prisons of the U.S. And when they deported people back into the region... They started to organize and gain power in that region. Mm -hmm. And then you would wonder what is causing the gangs to thrive. It's the American thirst for drugs and human labor. And so I see this argument all the time when people say we, we don't have a responsibility to asylum seekers where they say like, oh, yeah, uh, maybe they should just deal with their own problems in their own country. And there's this t complete lack of awareness how American drug use, American policies that are non-interventions or interventions or whatever in that region have created this problem that we all say is not our responsibility to deal with, or I guess I should say many of us say isn't our responsibility. Uh, absolutely. So we are passing the buck on the backs of thousands who are suffering, but moreover, the M13 and the 18th Street gang etc all originated in the United States and it is really a slap in the face to all of us who have been aware of what has been going on since the late 80s in Central America or even before. I know and I think that it's really difficult to think about the women and children who are victims of this crisis because they have less to do with it than citizens of our own country does. Like they're, they're not culpable for the crimes of M13 
any more than like you and I are simply because they were born in that country. Why should a child born in San Salvador have to deal with M13? Why are they responsible for M13 any more than the children that are born in this country are? They, they have nothing to do with those gangs. And in fact, it's political maneuvering. That's what we're talking about here. So let's go back to the political maneuvering for a second and talk about Obama's place in this because he had really truly misguided policies with immigration. Were you disappointed with those policies? Yeah, I feel like misguided is a very light way of putting it. They were not misguided. They were directed specifically at deterring Central American migration. They didn't make that a secret. They, this wasn't that anything that hit the Department of Homeland Security was confused about. They were deliberately trying to stop the flow of Central American migrants into the United States, not only with our own detention policies on our border, but they were also paying Mexico in the Plan Frontera Sur to try and stop migrants from reaching the southern border and becoming a problem we had to deal with. So so calling it misguided is very a gentle thing to do to a president. I think a lot of people loved. I loved him. I voted for him twice. But I had and continue to have incredible issues with his immigration policy, especially because it was the architecture of what Trump is doing now. I think it's a bit of a wake-up call. For, yeah. for, for me, it was. I think it ought to be. And I've, I've been saying this to groups of people who, who seem a little bit alarmed and perhaps even offended. But the point is, this isn't a Trumpian policy. It's a Trump policy. It's an Obama policy. It was a Clinton policy. It was a Bush policy. That we have a very long tradition of using detention and deportation and family separation as a tool for controlling immigrants and that this criminalization of immigrants has been Clinton administration. It's not just about I didn't vote for Trump and I don't sign on to these evil policies and that like this is this is our nation's problem. Then the solutions out of it become much more visible to me mm-hmm. in the sense that I know that the Democratic leadership in the state I live in, in New Mexico, has known about this forever and done nothing, right? So that leaves you with like, I'm not just simply going to shame them, but I'm also just not going to elect a Democrat and think this problem is going to be solved. It's time to say to our Democratic leadership, you've known about this, you haven't done anything, now is the time to become a moral leader in this moment and actually help make the decisions that will keep people protected. And you know, I hear this echoed countlessly, countlessly from the DACA activists that I work with. They are fed up. They were fed up in 2008 and 9 and 10 and 11. And when they met with Obama in 2012, it was a political maneuvering that forced him into creating DACA, wasn't it? And that's what I want people to understand when they see Democrats taking their photo ops with children on the border and families on the border right now. These same Democrats have known that this is going on for a very long time and backed it when Obama was doing family separation and family detention. Furthermore, a lot of them have been taking payouts from the correctional facilities. They're taking, you know, donations from correctional facilities that are making a huge amount of money off family separation and family detention in the U.S. This is all to say, if you think that going to the midterm voting booth in November and voting for a Democrat makes you an activist in this particular issue, you're wrong. We have to, before the midterms, hold our Democratic leadership incredibly accountable for what's going on on the border and let them know we will not be voting for them unless we see a change coming from the Democrats. 
there's so many different nuances around this topic that as you dig deeper, you find things that are frightening and sickening. And one of those is that corporations are benefiting from immigrant detention. But let's be really clear. These corporations are getting filthy rich from this suffering. These corporations are having their best quarters ever. So who are those people and how are they doing this? Correctional corporations, the big ones that I know are operating in immigration detention in our country right now are Core Civic, which is formerly the Correctional Corporation of America, and then another group called the GEO Group. It's important to understand that they make money off of the detention of immigrants, but they also make money off of regular criminal detention as well. This is a sickness that spans far past just immigration detention. And essentially, they make contracts with our government to house and detain prisoners. They actually have contracts with our government that we have to have a certain number of beds filled every night or we're in breach of contract and we end up paying anyway. So we pay a high amount of money of our tax dollars to these corporations. I think for children in Dilly, Texas, where I work, which is a family detention facility, it's something to the tune of $330 a night to house these children. Now that's a 2,400 bed facility, mm. which means they might be getting close to a million dollars a night, like $800,000 or $900,000 a night just to keep those beds occupied. And so there, there are these corporations who are getting insanely rich off of detention. Now, there's all sorts of alternatives to detention, right? It's 2018, so we have sort of digital monitoring programs. We have ways to put ankle bracelets on families because the whole idea of immigrant detention, it's not punitive, right? It's a civil administrative violation. The theory of the punishment and the theory of the incarceration is that if we don't detain them, they're not going to show up at their hearings. Well, guess what? You can detain someone in a corporate prison for $350 a night or whatever, or you can put them out on an ankle bracelet monitoring system for $5 a day. Why wouldn't we be doing that? Because then these corporations who are in bed with all of our lawmakers wouldn't be getting rich. And they're not going to be open about it. I'm not interested in shaming anyone for their past hypocrisies. It doesn't seem very fruitful to me. But I would encourage them to come out and show some really strong leadership in this. Allegra, I want to thank you for such a compelling, truthful, and powerful conversation today. And I want to invite everyone who is listening to come back for part two of our conversation with Allegra Love. If you have protested for anything in the past 18 years, you very well may be in my book, I Protest. Please go to my website, tishlampert.org, that's www.tishlampert.org, and see if you can find yourself in my book. You can also follow me on Twitter, at tishlampertcom. That's at T-I-S-H-L-A-M-P-E-R-T-C-O-M. And find me on Instagram, T-I-S-H underscore L-A-M-P-E-R-T underscore O-R-G. And once again, I want to thank James Koblenz, Oscar Batista, and Kim Langbacker, without whom this episode would not be possible. And lastly, we would love to hear from you. Please write to us at americaspeakspodcast at gmail.com and tell us what you thought of today's episode and come back for our next episode of America Speaks. Remember, America Speaks believes every one of us has a story. And a voice. <laughs>